Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. Your hosts, Russell and Dr. Pete. We're solution architects based out of Australia, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tech Chat. This is episode five, and I'm Russ. I've got Dr. Pete with me as well. Hey, guys. Welcome back to the show. It's great to have you tuning in again. Now, we've got something for everyone in this episode. We're going to do the roundup of all the latest and greatest from AWS. We've got a little bit of infrastructure to talk about. We've got some nice developments in the development world and also some analytics stuff to talk about towards the end as well. So to kick us off, Pete, what's happening with uh, EBS? Well, this is really a discussion around price and performance. Um, so for those of you who may have missed the blog entries and the announcements, um, we have reduced the prices of EBS snapshots, so for the storage, by 40%, 47% across all regions. Now, what this really means is that um, the price reduction kicks in retrospectively from the 1st of August this year and is applied automatically, as you guys probably are aware of. Now, for those of you who happen to be using um, Storage Gateway, um, those snapshots uh, which are associated with storage gateway cache volumes are also going to have a price reductions, which is very, very cool. And uh, for those of you who've been around for a while, and uh, remember back in 2012, we announced the provisioned IOPS feature for EBS. Uh, we've also now increased the number of IOPS that you can get per gigabyte of provisioned storage. So until now, you could provision up to 30 IOPS per gigabyte of SSD-backed storage. But now you can provision up to 50 IOPS per gigabytes for new EBS volumes. And that's a 66% increase in performance. So uh, the nice thing about provision IOPS, as those of you who are already using it, is that um, uh, it's designed to deliver within a 10% of the provision IOPS that you've actually set 99.9% uh, .9 of the time during a given year. So Rasa, some great price reductions and also performance improvements in the EBS world. Fantastic, Pete. So, with the uh, with that increase in provisioned IOPS per gigabyte, does that mean that I could potentially reduce the number of volumes that I have for the same number of IOPS? Well, you can actually reduce the volumes and get a saving as well as get higher performance. So, yes, and then you can always grow them later as the need arises. Because a lot of customers had provisioned very large volumes uh, in order to get uh, a greater number of IOPS. Fantastic. So let's talk a little bit about RDS. So mm. RDS is our um, relational database service. For those of you not familiar, it's a managed database service that comes in a number of different flavors. And it's also uh, like, your favorite topic, right? It is. Well, actually, <laughs> it is, Pete. It is. Um, <laughs> Databases, big data. I don't know, Russ. Uh, so, so tell us a little bit about this because um, there's been a fair bit of activity um, around Amazon Aurora in particular. There, there has been. So let me just explain quickly for those who, who aren't familiar with uh, with RDS that it does come in a number of different flavors like Oracle SQL Server, some of the open source engines like MySQL and Postgres. And there's also uh, Amazon Aurora, which is a MySQL compatible database that we've developed to uh, to essentially give you um, better performance over, over MySQL. Now, with Amazon Aurora, what you can have is you can have your primary database instance, which is where you do all of your all of your writes, but you can also spread the read load across other replicas as well. Now, previously, you would have an endpoint for the primary instance, and then you'd also have an endpoint for each of those read instances as well. Now, what we've just released for Aurora is the ability to have a single read endpoint. 
that will cover all of those read replicas. That's pretty so cool. So what that means, it's yeah, it's great, Pete, because what it means is it, it's just uh, much easier to manage now because then you can potentially add new replicas or take them away and that endpoint remains the same. So that means the connection string remains the same and your application remains unaffected. You just can add and reduce the capacity for your read replicas. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Now that's it is it is for for the read only workload, but it's quite nice because you can spread that across uh, availability zones if you wish to, and it will also load balance those connections across the uh, the number of read replicas that you've got there as well. So so just a, a nice quite a nice option there if you do use the read replica feature within Amazon Aurora. Okay. And what about Oracle? Anything new in the Oracle space? Lots, lots, Pete, lots of stuff going on with Oracle and RDS. So one of the things we've introduced now is the ability to use Oracle Label Security, the OLS feature. What that so do? what this does, so it basically allows, uh, controls access to individual rows within a table. So depending on what level of access you have, uh, you're only going to see the rows that you're actually allowed to see. Cool. So we've introduced, yes, we've now made that available for, uh, for Oracle and RDS um, in 12C. Now, there are some licensing implications in that, so you do actually have to be licensed with Oracle to use that feature, but if you want to use that with RDS now, you can. Okay. What about uh, Enterprise Manager? Well, that's another nice thing. So if you use the Oracle Enterprise Manager to manage multiple Oracle databases, you can now include your RDS for Oracle instances in that as well. So um, you can install the, or will install for you, the OMA, the Oracle Management Agent on that RDS instance, and then that will then show up um, and communicate with the Oracle management service. So you'll be able to manage those those instances as well. So again, just a nice feature just to to, to reduce that management burden if you've got multiple uh, Oracle RDS instances. And what about also licensing? I think Oracle's been uh, uh, allowing us to do a few more things with uh, the licensing models on RDS. That's right. So, um, so if you're not familiar with with the commercial engines, there's two licensing options. You can either have the the license of the, the database license included in the per hour cost. So that per hour cost for RDS would include both the infrastructure and the the database license, or you can bring your own database license to that. Now, it does depend on the actual edition that you're using uh, for that particular database. So what we've just introduced now for Oracle on RDS is that um, standard edition two is now available for that license included option as well, um, which is quite nice because then you can pay for that by the hour. And then when you when you want to stop using it, that then you don't have to pay for the infrastructure or the license as well. So what are the options if uh, for licensing in that case? So what, what can the customers actually expect to uh, you know, be able to do on IDS Oracle? So, so where that is today is that for the license included options, that covers standard edition one and also standard edition two. Mm-hmm. And then for the bring your own license, you can either do that with the original standard edition, uh, also standard edition one, standard edition two, and the enterprise edition as well. Right, interesting. Cool. Okay, that's an extra bonus. And you know what's interesting? Um, I've had customers who've been using um, SE1 and they'll probably be going to SE2 now and moving away from the enterprise edition licensing, uh, which is far cheaper, um, and just jacking up the uh, provisioned IOPS. So I guess with the new EBS volume improvements, uh, that certainly will be of, uh, of greater assistance. Very nice. Very nice indeed. Cool. Okay. What else is happening in RDS? Because there's a lot happening in the data world. There, there is indeed. Uh, so moving from the commercial engine to one of the open source engines, we've had Postgres 
as an engine available for RDS for quite a while. And we've just introduced some new enhancements to that as well. So there's a couple of minor versions that now you can upgrade to. So 9.3.14 is available, as is 9.4.9, and also 9.5.2. Now, there's a number of features in, in those releases, but one of the things that's important in that release is the ability to support logical replication. Now, what this is, Pete, is mm-hmm. the ability to basically stream changes as they happen on the on that primary database right. so that you can then capture those and the primary use case is to then replicate those changes to, a, to another uh, another database somewhere else. So does that mean we can use potentially uh, the database migration service to support that? Exactly, exactly. Uh-huh. So um, I'm very glad you asked that. So we have the database migration service, which, uh, as you know, um, supports changes from um, most of the the, the, ma- the major engines. Uh, the one that was missing was Postgres on RDS, and that's changed now as well. So if your use case is that you're using Postgres on RDS, um, as some kind of transactional database, and you want to replicate those changes to another database, typically the target for that is something like uh, Redshift, for example, where you can start to do some analysis, then the database migration service can now do that for you. So you simply point it at your RDS Postgres as a source, and it will replicate those changes to you into your target um, database, and then you can you can then have a, another copy that you can use for analytics and stuff like that. Awesome. Awesome. So that's a nice feature. Uh, the other the other thing I just wanted to add about the enhancements for Postgres is the support for triggers as well now. So if you do want to have triggers in your database uh, on Postgres with RDS, you can do that as well. Okay. And what about SQL servers? That's uh, another commercial engine that we have. Um, anything new to add? Yeah, we didn't want to uh, didn't want to allow the uh, SQL Server people to feel left out. So we've introduced a very handy feature, which is that you can now do a backup, a native backup to S3 from uh, from SQL Server on RDS. So the primary use case here is where you actually want to take a, a backup of that database and then maybe use that backup um, to move that on-premise if you were doing some on-premise work or vice versa the other way. So you might want to take a backup of an on-premise SQL Server, put that into S3, and then natively you can just suck that in from S3 into your RDS instance and and uh, and there you go. You've got your, you've got your, full, your full database there. So that's, an, again, just a nice feature that just kind of um, – makes it a little bit easier to work with. Yeah, that's actually quite handy because uh, we've had customers, um, you know, sometimes trying to run an installer which installs your applications and deploys it, um, not having enough admin rights to actually create a database um, in IDS. Um, so, yeah, with this feature, what you could do is actually create the database, you know, on-prem or on EC2, um, you know, let the installer run its full course, then do a backup to S3 and restore into IDS and presto, all of a sudden, uh, you know, you've bypassed some, you know, um, installer issues that you may have hit. So that's really cool, Russ. That's a very handy feature. And uh, I'm sure the uh, Microsoft ecosystem running on AWS will be very happy with that feature. They will be. They will be. Uh, just one other thing, Pete, if you'll allow me. Sure. Um, while uh, while we're talking about RDS, uh, another feature we've introduced is the ability to change the VPC that your RDS instance is in. So um, if you're running in a particular VPC now, you can actually then uh, change the VPC that that particular instance is in. Mm-hmm. Or if you are still using um, EC2 Classic, so if you're still sorry, if you're still using Classic as opposed to VPC, so if you have your RDS instance outside of a VPC, you can then put that inside the the VPC. 
That's pretty handy because that means you can just move the database between dev test prod environments. And what about multi AZ? How does what happens when you've got, you got if you're actually running multi AZ? Yeah, that's a good question. So one thing to be aware is you will actually have to turn multi AZ off temporarily, then move the instance to the other VPC and then switch it back on again. Oh, very cool. Awesome. Yeah. The the other sorry the other just quick thing about that is that is available. That feature is available for all engines except uh, Aurora currently. Gotcha. But I guess, you know, Aurora's getting some extra new features to, to complement that. I'm sure you won't be too far away. Nice. That's right. Wow. A lot of cool stuff in the uh, database world, Russ. I'm, sh- I'm sure uh, your spider senses were, t- were, were tickled pink. They were. They were. Thanks for indulging me, Pete. And now, because you've been so generous, I'm going to allow you to talk about some dev stuff. Awesome. So for those of you that remember the Elastic Load Balancer, which we announced back in the spring of 2009, um, you know, that really changed the way we uh, load balance application traffic on AWS. Uh, we now have actually announced and made available the brand new um, application load balancer uh, for essentially load balancing traffic. Uh, just to explain a little bit more behind the scenes. So a load balancer operates the classic ELB, so the ELB that you've been using for a while, uh, operates at layer four and it load balances traffic as well as layer seven, which is where it handles things like HTTP and HTTPS traffic for you. So we're calling the uh, Elastic Load Balancer, we're calling it now the Classic Load Balancer. It's still available, you can continue to use it, but now we've got the brand new um, application level load balancer, the ALB. Um, And the nice thing about the ALB that it supports a whole bunch of new things. Uh, For example, it supports the uh, WebSockets and HTTP2 protocols, as well as allows you to be able to, you know, um, do some content-based routing. Uh, Now, if you do want to move to the brand new ALB, uh, there is actually a, um, uh, a load balancer copy utility tool that's written in Python. And what it will do is it'll actually look at your configuration of the ELB and recreate you a brand new ALB with the same configurations, which you can tweak later. So there's a great migration path that you can take forward. So Pete, just a quick question. Does, does the ALB have a superset of the ELB functionality? So would I, is, are there still workloads or types of applications where I may still need an ELB or, or a classic load balancer? Yeah, so you may actually find yourself running both. Um, so to answer your question, you may find that if you're actually routing uh, non-HTTP traffic, for example, uh, you may actually want to rely on using different port numbers. Uh, so the uh, ELB can still be used for that. And don't forget, the ELB has got a couple of uh, you know handy ways of you know um, taking you know uh, raw socket connections and also passing forward the actual original source IP address, which you can detect in your applications behind the uh, ELB. Uh, with the ALB. Uh, the idea is that we focus more on content-based routing. So think of layer seven, so uh, web traffic and web sockets, so the old speedy references for the new protocols. And the idea is that uh, we can do content-based routing based upon what's actually sitting in the HTTP headers uh, of your requests. So for example, when you have a web application and you have domain.com slash API um, or slash blog, uh, in the actual uh, URL that you're re- referencing, uh, the ALB can look at the HTTP request and say, hey, this is destined for API or for the blog part of my website. And then the ALB can route that traffic to a different set of auto-scaling groups. And incidentally, we are calling these target groups because these are essentially you know, auto-scaling groups that make up a different part of your application. And essentially, you know, when you think about building microservices and a lot of 
of our customers are heading down the path of breaking down monolithic applications and creating lots of microservices, this is a really nice way of being able to route traffic to the appropriate endpoints that are going to be able to self-scale uh, at the microservice level, Russ. Nice one, Pete. So that's going to give you a lot more control over, over your traffic and where it's going to scale. Correct. You know, in the past, a lot of customers were using the ELB and creating microservices behind them and using things like CloudFront to uh, create behaviors and sending you know, the traffic to the appropriate destinations by doing that. Now with the ALB, we can be far more granular about how we route traffic at the ALB level. So it's it, it, similar to some of the RDS features we were talking about, really just another example of taking some of the, the pain away out of uh, out of managing these types of things. That's right. The, the heavy lifting that uh, everyone needs to do, let us do that. Um, you know, just to add, you know, the other part, the other benefit of this is that um, a lot of customers are also moving their applications into containers. So the Amazon EC2 container service is a very popular way of building microservices and breaking down those monoliths into smaller chunks. Um, and essentially, you know, we also provide support for um, the container service, so ECS, uh, with dynamic ports, uh, can be used to be essentially the uh, the underlying you know runtime environment that actually runs your microservices for you. So those dynamic ports and those paths and those routes can be managed quite nicely as a part of the ALB in concert with the uh, ECS service. Fantastic. Now, is there another advantage of the ALB that you get slightly better metrics as well? Yes, you do, which is, uh, I'm glad you asked, because uh, when you're building microservices, um, obviously you look at, you know, CloudWatch metrics for those particular parts of your application stack. Um, the ALB also monitors uh, the particular endpoints. So in other words, uh, it does it on a per port basis. So you can have different ports behind the ALB running, like I said, dynamic ports essentially, running your microservices. Um, and you can have, you can specify a range of acceptable HTTP responses, so aka health checks um, that are accompanied by appropriate error codes. So you can actually see how your microservices are actually behaving. Uh, and as a byproduct of this content-based routing, you also have the opportunity to collect metrics uh, for those services so that you can actually scale up and scale down and in fact we give you some additional metrics uh, that include the um, overall traffic that's been pushed back and forth in gigabytes the number of active connections that are currently uh, open uh, as well as the connection rates per hour that are essentially being made uh, to your back-end infrastructure wow it sounds like you can get a lot more granular with your with your metrics and reporting there pete it is, and you know, I think content-based routing is the future for microservices. As a lot of uh, our customers have realized, you know, and quite often they may have used, it, like I said, the ELB or potentially ran their own content-based routing tiers in order to achieve the same thing. So now you can decommission those. The ALB also supports WebSockets, and uh, for those of you that uh, you know are not familiar with, with WebSockets, you know, these are essentially um, a more efficient way of. Um, you know, having your clients connect to your backend applications. Uh, in the past, if you wanted to have a lingering connection to make sure your client was registered with the backend, you would have to run your own heartbeats to make sure the HTTP connection wasn't torn down. Um, now with WebSockets, uh, you know, this, this is a native feature uh, and fully supported in the ALB. So uh, your WebSockets via uh, WS and WSS protocols are actually fully supported, which is really, really handy. That's nice. And you also mentioned HTTP2 as well. What, what are some of the advantages of that over the 1.1 protocol? 
Yep, so this used to be referred to as Speedy um, by some others in the past. Uh, so HTTP2 really has, um, it's a new version of the HTTP protocol. And what it allows you to do is multiplex multiple requests ac across a single connection, uh, which really means that it reduces the network traffic that needs to be going back and forth. And, you know, in a world of uh, lots of web connections, you want to minimize any kind of latency. So to be able to multiplex and reuse those connections becomes really, really handy. And essentially, you know, when you think of the ALB, think of it as, We've re we designed it to be able to allow for you know higher volumes of streaming traffic, so real time traffic, WebSocket traffic, workloads, uh, and you know essentially because a lot of people are doing a great deal of streaming, you want to reduce the store and forward functionality of the load balancer, uh, and the ALB essentially is you know intends to be the, the lowest latency to increase increase the actual application performance and uh, customer experience. Fantastic. Now, you touched on containers there, Pete. Uh, there's been some changes to our own container service. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about a couple of those new features? Sure. So so for those of you that may not be familiar with, with uh, container services, so the Amazon EC2 container service um, essentially is a platform to be able to you know, scale and give you high-performance container management uh, that supports Docker. Uh, and what it means is that you know we we basically can deploy and manage your containers uh, across a fleet of EC2 instances, and you decide how big or small you want that fleet to be. So the extensions that we've recently added to ECS are generally around networking modes and memory reservations. Uh, so on the networking side, you know we've had a lot of requests for customers to say, "Hey, I want to be able to control my networking better." So I already touched upon the dynamic port support uh, that now is available with ECS with the ALB, uh, but we've also added a couple of extra features around the networking, which means that when you start up your container, uh, we give you a couple of options in the task definition that describes how your task actually connects to the network. Um, by default, we allow your containers to be in a bridged mode, which means they can connect to the network uh, via the virtual fabric. Uh, you can also turn that off. So you can spin up containers now that have no network connectivity whatsoever. So that's, that can be quite interesting as a use case, as well as we can turn on host networking mode, which offers the highest performance uh, for, your, for your containers because they use the direct host network connectivity stack as opposed to going through the virtualized bridge mode uh, that Docker also introduces. So that's an interesting way of you know improving performance or essentially turning off all connectivity. Right, interesting. And on memory side of things, um, that's also been a big request because obviously, when you're running Docker um, uh, infrastructure, you want to manage your memory as efficiently as possible because you are stacking lots of containers into a single instance or perhaps a fleet of instances. So we also give you the ability now to, um, you know, again, control how memory reservations are actually set. So this is actually a soft limit feature. Um, and what happens is that when there are memory pressures on the underlying EC2 instance, uh, by turning on the reservation, we will actually allow you to specify a soft limit uh, that is only enforced when memory is unavailable. So in other words, when the container containers are heavily stacked, uh, you can actually turn this feature on and we can be a lot more aggressive about how memory is being managed. So there's a lot of uh, you know benefits coming out of this. And if you want to know more, go and check out the task definition parameters uh, in a documentation to uh, figure out what the best switches should be when you actually deploy these. Nice one. Now, obviously, in a in a container environment, you want to have some kind of registry so that you can keep, ta keep track of all your, uh, all your images. Have we made some updates to ECR as well, Pete. Yes, so ECS works very closely with the um, Amazon um, Container Registry, which is essentially your own private um, Docker Hub, essentially. 
Uh, and the idea for, for the ECI is you know, it's, it's a fully managed uh, container registry that makes it easy for developers to store, manage, and essentially deploy your containers. Uh, it's tied in very closely with IAM, so it's secure. Um, and you know, by opening this up, you can then allow ECS to be able to fetch those containers and deploy them onto your EC2 fleet. Now, until recently, uh, the registry, the private registry, ECR, uh, was only available in a, in a handful of regions. So I'm, I'm pleased to say that we've now announced that you know, we have five more additional regions that support it. Uh, so you can have ECR available in a total of eight regions. And, and these are essentially in Virginia, US West, uh, Northern California, in Singapore, Sydney, Tokyo, Frankfurt, and also Ireland. So that means you can now take your private registries and keep them closer to whatever you're actually running your ECS clusters. Because in the past, um, some customers were shipping containers uh, from ECR from other regions to be run in another region halfway across the world. So this will certainly improve uh, the, the performance that you experience in starting up your containers. And if that wasn't enough, ECR has also added some additional support for um, Docker registry APIs, in particular, um, that means that we've actually added the um, Docker Registry HTTP version 2 specification to it, in namely the V2 tag lists and the catalog methods. And what these are, Russ, essentially is, is a way of allowing you to retrieve a list of all the tags for a given repository which contains your images, as well as uh, an, an ability to be able to retrieve a list of all the repositories that are also there. So a great way to be able to get more visibility around X as to what you're running uh, via the very familiar um, you know, APIs that you may have used with uh, Docker Hub and um, other specifications. Fantastic. Now, I know that all that container stuff, Pete, got you very excited, but I saw, uh, I saw another feature that, we'd been, that we released recently, which I thought would excite you even more being uh, the Windows developer that you are, and that was some enhancements to Beanstalk around .NET. Mm -hmm. get, us, get us excited about that. Uh, is, is my voice showing that excitement? Yes, so most of you who, who, who perhaps know me uh, may have seen um, Daniel Zoltek and myself present at uh, the AWS Summit here in, uh, in Sydney and in New Zealand talking about uh, .NET Core, which is essentially Microsoft's new uh, and improved version of the .NET runtime, and in particular, be able to run uh, ASP.NET and console applications uh, on Linux, Mac, and also Windows. Uh, so they've made a cross-platform. Uh, uh, in line with that, um, we've been actually very closely working on improvements to Elastic Beanstalk, and in fact, we've now announced that we support ASP.NET Core, which is the latest framework, to be able to be deployed via Elastic Beanstalk. What it also gives you is the ability to be able to deploy that in such a way that you can create additional manifest configurations so that you can not just deploy a single ASP.NET Core web application via Beanstalk and have it auto-scaled, uh, but also have it deployed so that you can deploy it with an additional application, which means you can deploy multiple web apps at the same time onto Windows, which happen to be ASP.NET Core apps. So if you have a console component to your application, which is for perhaps for the administrator, and you have the uh, public customer facing part of your website, uh, we can deploy those uh, at the same time via Elastic Beanstalk. In the past, you may have run multiple um, you know, uh, Elastic Beanstalk deployments to uh, get that feature, or perhaps run a single node instance that had the admin console. Now you can do that all at the same time. And what's nice about that is that uh, we've also given you now the ability to, to configure the uh, web IIS pool, so the um, 
um, Windows web server configurations to be able to run your apps in different app pools with different policies for recycling and restarting. And if that wasn't enough, we give you full customization via PowerShell uh, to be able to run, run a PowerShell script when you install uninstall and restart your ASP.NET application. So Russ, that's a mouthful, uh, but uh, for a lot of Microsoft developers uh, who are heading on this path, uh, this is kind of cool and very sexy. Well, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say sexy, Pete, <laughs> but uh, it certainly is exciting. Now, uh, the question on everyone's lips, of course, is does Beanstalk support the new application load balancer that you talked about? Great question, and the answer is absolutely. So you can now choose between the classic and the application load balances when you create your Elastic Beanstalk environments. And that's across all of the different um, uh, you know, runtime environments that you may choose to run. In fact, if that wasn't enough, we've also announced that uh, Elastic Beanstalk now also supports Nginx as a proxy server running with Tomcat. Now, in the past, um, you may have been running Apache uh, with Tomcat. Uh, now we support Nginx as the uh, proxy that runs in front of your uh, your application, and it gives you as for those of you that use Nginx, it's a very lightweight um, web server and a reverse proxy. So it does improve the performance for things like caching and serving out static content that are maybe part of your application, which is very very cool. Nice one. Now, moving on to CloudFront, I think we've expanded uh, CloudFront's footprint globally. Yes, we certainly have, Russ. Uh, in fact, it's expanded into Canada. Uh, so we've also announced that we've now added two more edge locations in Toronto and Montreal, uh, which helps to serve out the content uh, closer to the, um, your customers, uh, which brings the total global count of our edge locations for CloudFront to 59. Um, but this also includes the second edge location that we've added in Sao Paulo, Brazil, uh, which came online very recently. So for those of you who are in North America and using the, um, want to now start to use the Canadian uh, edge locations, uh, the pricing for this is identical to the US edge locations as well. And if that wasn't enough, CloudFront's also added cost allocation tagging. Uh, so for those of you who've been trying to get more visibility around the consumption and spend uh, for your various uh, CloudFront distributions, you can certainly have a closer look inside now the um, uh, the Amazon you know detailed billing report that we produce and have a closer look at the cost and usage report and be able to see that now whenever you have a tag, uh, you will start to start to see in an Amazon resource name for your distributions uh, so that you can see exactly what has been spent and consumed on that particular distribution, which is uh, great for those that are wanting to do things like show back and perhaps get visibility of uh, you know where your costs are essentially going as your applications become really popular. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Pete. That was a great roundup of some of the development-focused features that we've released uh, recently. Now, I've got one more, by the way, one more which I don't want to miss, and that's for our friends in uh, in Seoul, in Korea. Uh, it, I'm pleased to say that we've, we've released the AWS Lambda and API Gateway also in that region, which is fantastic. So, uh, you know, thanks to our friends, um, which we had on the show, RJ and Stefano, who are the PMs for uh, API Gateway and Lambda. Thanks, guys. I'm sure our Korean friends and everybody in that part of the world will definitely appreciate it. Pete, you did mention that a couple of those development features were quite sexy. Um, and uh, I've got to say, though, some of the analytics stuff that we've got coming up is very, very exciting indeed. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when you build apps, you definitely want to be able to, uh, you know, get them up and running. But then what comes out of that is lots and lots of data. You know, data is king as well. And, uh, you know, I know data is a big passion of yours. So I'd love to get, you know, some feedback from you around some of the new announcements we've had in perhaps EMR space. 
So uh, for those of you not familiar with EMR, EMR is our managed Hadoop service, which basically allows you to very quickly get a, a Hadoop cluster up and running. And one of the key parts of that service is obviously support for a lot of the open source projects out there because that's really the key to the Hadoop ecosystem. And so one of the things that we really pride ourselves on with EMR is to get those new versions of open source projects into your hands as soon as possible. So we typically try and do that within three or four weeks of, uh, of a new release of one of those open source projects, getting that into, into EMR. So to that end, we've just released EMR 5.0, and there's a number of updates to a lot of the, um, the open source projects within that. But there's a couple of really interesting ones. Firstly, uh, Hive 2.1 is now in there. Now Hive is obviously the the kind of the workhorse of a lot of Hadoop environments. It was the first interface, first SQL interface, if you like, into um, into Hadoop, so that you could drive your cluster with uh, with something slightly easier to use than uh, than writing raw MapReduce. And uh, and Hive's been around, as I say, for a long time, and is embedded in a, not a lot of environments now. The, the actual MapReduce execution engine was uh, deemed to be a little bit slow and clunky. And so um, a new one uh, came along called Tez, uh, and Tez works really well with Hive and also with Pig. So now... Animal, with, like animal references, right? So, you know, this, 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 this is <laughs> quite interesting for a lot of people. This is demystify some of these a little bit. I know you had a go at it a couple of shows ago, but, uh, you know, how will this make our customers lives better? We, we should call this segment "Who's Who in the Zoo." Uh, <laughs> in the data yeah, zoo. Yeah. So, in the data zoo. So, yeah. So, so if you talk about execution engines, so MapReduce was the original execution engine that underpinned Hadoop, and then there were a couple of other ones that came along. One of them was Tez, and the the promise of Tez was that it would allow you to run your hive and pig environments without too much change to your application code because it was quite API compatible with the original MapReduce but gave you um, a lot of performance enhancements. So what we've done now is is, uh, Hive 2.1 in EMR will actually run on Tez by default. So to answer your question about benefits for customers, if you move to that new version, you should see an immediate performance speed up um, for a lot of your Hive jobs um, just out of the box, just by the fact that it's using that that Tez execution engine underneath the covers. Got it. Okay, so performance is one of the key benefits. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Now, um, the other execution engine which uh, has gained a lot of prominence is obviously Spark. Yeah. Now, Spark is uh, differs from Tez in that it's a much more general purpose type of engine, mm-hmm. so it doesn't um, doesn't kind of just work with uh, with certain things. It's really designed to be uh, much more general purpose. So you can do um, the Spark SQL, Spark Streaming, Spark R. There's a graph database in there as well. And they got uh, an API as well, I think. It does. So so one of the things that the the Spark guys have done with Spark 2.0, which has just been released uh, and we've put into uh, to the new release of EMR, is they've streamlined the APIs quite a bit. So there was a proliferation of APIs for different purposes and they've really tried to to streamline that and make it much easier for you to to use those different APIs. Got it. The, uh, the other thing they've done is they've uh, put this some really nice functionality into the Spark streaming piece as well. So their mantra there is that when you're thinking about streaming data, you should really forget the fact that it's streaming and you should just try and treat it as it is, uh, as if it was a static data set and let Spark streaming 
do a lot of the the heavy lifting underneath the covers. And there's some really nice features in there um, in in 2.0 for the Spark streaming piece. So if, if streaming is of interest, um, definitely check that out. So speaking of streaming, can you tell us a little bit more about Kinesis Stream and what's also happening there at Analytics? Yeah, absolutely. So to just to take a step back, if you're not familiar with Kinesis, Kinesis is our real-time streaming engine. And the original Kinesis, which is now called Kinesis Streams, gave you the ability to ingest data into the uh, into the Kinesis Stream and to then in near real time, you could then take those messages off the stream and then uh, do multiple things with them, whether you wanted to uh, take a log of them or create a dashboard or do some machine learning um, on them, etc. Uh, so that's Kinesis Stream. So that's kind of the uh, the base kind of raw level gives you access to the raw messages as they as they come off. Then we introduce Kinesis Firehose, which is a more managed version of Streams. And so what that does for you is is takes a little bit of the heavy lifting out of certain workloads. So for example, if you wanted to just push data to S3 or to Redshift or to Elasticsearch, Kinesis Firehose will do that for you automatically, and it will do the the aggregation of those messages, you can encrypt the data, you can compress it, um, et cetera. So designed for, for those three destinations, if your destination is one of those three, then Firehose um, can help you with that. But there's more, Russ, isn't there? There is more. There is more. <laughs> um, now, Pete, you and I have talked previously on the show how SQL has really uh, come back with a vengeance in the last few years right. as the, the language of choice for interfacing with a lot of these new systems. That's why it's that phoenix um, rising from its, from its ashes of death, but uh, it's not it's, dead yet. Uh, SQL has a lot to answer for and people love it. It's, uh, it is absolutely thriving. Uh, and so to that end, we've added a SQL interface now into either Kinesis Streams or Kinesis Analytics. And you can think of this as really just a just kind of tapping into the stream on the side and, and being able to interrogate that data as it flows through the stream uh, with SQL. So you're essentially writing SQL queries on that streaming data. So you're getting it in stream. You don't you don't have to wait for it to get written to a database or some kind of storage layer. Um, you really just, it is really just kind of a tap on the side of the stream. And obviously that, all those messages are still flowing to wherever their final destination is, but you're able to use SQL to potentially aggregate, look for uh, anomalies in the stream, um, that kind of thing. So very, very exciting. So, so, so Russ, with, uh, with SQL, generally you need to have a table structure and a schema definition that describes things. You know, how does that actually work in this context? You know, if I've got a stream of data coming in uh, into Kinesis, you know, how does SQL, how, how do I structure my queries to be able to, you know, look at a particular field or an attribute that's actually in flight? Yeah, that's a great question, Pete. So if you're, if the data coming through is in JSON format or CSV or TSV, Kinesis Analytics will actually try and detect the schema of your data and then basically overlay that on the data so that you can then um, you can then start to query it. Because as you say, exactly that, you need to be able to specify certain columns, et cetera, in your SQL statement. Now, if for some reason uh, it can't detect the schema, then you can just, you can basically just tell it what the schema is um, and we'll, we'll then use that um, instead. Um, now, once you've run that SQL query, obviously you're going to get some results out of that, some aggregated results. What you can do with that is you can then push those results either into another Kinesis stream or into a Kinesis Firehose stream, um, and then obviously use that in downstream applications. So uh, very, very exciting. It's something that uh, a lot of customers have been wanting to to, to have for a while. Mm -hmm. um, it's now available in uh, US East, West 
um, and uh, and Ireland. Wow, this is pretty cool because uh, I'm sure a lot of developers are going to look at this and say, "Hey, now I can actually you know do my queries in memory while it's still in Kinesis before it hits my database." Wow, awesome. exactly, exactly, yeah. So, what about uh, you know some other services that we've got and things in particular? I'm thinking of things like Elasticsearch because that's kind of like searching in on a stream um, in this case. But you know, what else have we done with Elasticsearch um, 2.3 in particular? Yeah, so Elasticsearch, if you're not familiar, is an open source search engine. So, it started life as a full text search engine, but because of its ability to do distributed processing, a lot of people have used it for analytics as well. Uh, and so, it's used a lot for uh, for log analytics and application monitoring um, in a kind of near real time setting. So, a lot of a lot of very um, very strong support for Elasticsearch in the community. So customers said to us, hey guys, we love Elasticsearch, but we don't really enjoy managing it. So can you Amazon uh, manage our cluster for us? So that's why we introduced Amazon Elasticsearch, which is a managed uh, Elasticsearch service. And the release that we've just done is uh, Elasticsearch 2.3. So as you said, Pete, that's just come out. And 2.3 has got a bunch of new features in there. Uh, It's also got, better performance, better memory management, enhanced security, uh, et cetera. So um, quite a big release from the Elasticsearch community and now available in um, in our managed service as well. Awesome. So go go check it out, guys. Now, what about you know if I'm running an application and I don't have a large data set? Um, can you recommend something that I could play with um, just to get my hands dirty? I do. So we've got a number of public data sets that we host for you uh, on S3. So if you have a look in the open data sets um, section of the of the main website, you'll see them there. And there's a real range of data sets. So some of them are things like um, web crawl data. Um, there's IRS filings, you know, tax returns, etc. On there. Um, do you for, more, for more for <laughs> there's genomes as well um, depending on what you want to do and there's also quite a bit of um, satellite imagery on there as well and the new uh, the new set we've added is the uh, the spacenet um, imagery now the the idea behind this is that we provide you with some high resolution satellite imagery but we also give you about 200,000 building footprint uh, metadata as well, so that you can then train your machine learning models to look at the images and actually then pull out some of the artifacts, some of the information around roads or buildings, etc. So, really designed to advance the development of those types of algorithms, Pete, to to help people to extract some of those features uh, from that kind of imagery. That's pretty cool. And you know, I know we're getting short on time now because uh, this is becoming a very long show with the uh, the roundup. But um, you know. You know you know, privacy and security is pretty important to us. It's job zero, as we always say. Um, can you share just one final thing around uh, what's happening with our key management service? Yeah, so we introduced the the key management service a while ago, and a lot of customers were very happy about that because it really simplified for them the management of the encryption keys when they were doing their encryption. Uh, so the, key, the KMS is a cloud-based service that does the the creation and the management of your uh, encryption keys. Now, a couple of customers had, had an extra requirement where they were able to use KMS, but they themselves actually had to create the keys uh, on-premise or in some kind of hardware security module. So we've just introduced a new feature where you can now actually import a key into KMS that's been created elsewhere. So the common use case there would be that you create it on-premise, 
and then you obviously um, need to, to transport that securely and there's ways of doing that, which we talk about in the in the doco. And then you can import that into KMS and it's then in KMS for then for you to use in your applications within within AWS. Um, and there's things like um, you can set expiry dates on that, um, et cetera, et cetera. So just makes KMS uh, even more widely available to customers who needed that that ability to create their own keys. Exactly, and you know, especially if you're going multi-region as well, you know, you can take the same keys and you know, upload them to different regions to have, to have consistency uh, if that's something that you're actually looking for. So, wow, Russ, that's been a huge, huge roundup. You know, we've covered so much ground from you know IDS development, security now, uh, analytics. Uh, wow, I, ho- I hope next month's uh, you know uh, half as exciting as this at least. Yeah, fantastic, Pete. <laughs> it's uh, it's. It's been a lot of uh, a lot of fun discussing all that with you. So, guys, thanks for tuning in. We really hope you enjoyed the show, and tune in next time for more exciting interviews and roundups from AWS. Signing off. This is Russ, and this is Dr. Pete. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn more about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to the AWS Tech Chat through iTunes, SoundCloud, or by Googling AWS Tech Chat.